Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pod save the queen. Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the Queen. I'm your host Anne Gripper and we have another special episode this week. Uh, my usual friends are off running about their regular business and instead we have a very special guest with us, Daisy Goodwin, the writer of Victoria, which is currently running on ITV, ran in P- on PBS earlier this year. Also, it goes out in Canada and various other countries and uh, is very much an excellent royal show, which we enjoy very much. So we hope you'll enjoy hearing what Daisy has to talk about with us today. Welcome to the show, Daisy. Hi there. Hi. So um, I'm just going to put it in context for people where we are as we record this, um, because obviously the whole of Series 3 went out in America earlier this year. In the UK, we are only partway through it. And we've just Mm -hmm. had the cholera episode. So for those of Mm -hmm. us who have seen the series so far, we know that that is a reasonably significant one. So there will be spoilers in this in this show. If you haven't seen beyond, if you haven't yet seen the cholera cholera episode and beyond, then you may want to save this podcast for for when you have. Because, I mean, it's a little bit strange talking about a historical drama and saying that there's spoilers in it, because people say, you know, it's history. Yeah. Just read your history books and you'll know what's going on. But it's a, it is a drama as well. You bring the characters to life and, and there is the unexpected happening, particularly on, on Sunday's show. And I was, I was very outraged by um, somewhere that did spoil <laughs> declaring who was going to die so it, oh yeah which I was know. a shame well, that, that was a shame yeah so how do you how you know how do you see that kind of history and drama mix how does that work for you because that's obviously what you specialize in well i think you've got to you've got to mix it up because you've got to have the um you've got to have you know, the, the events that we all know happen. Although you'd be amazed at how many people didn't realise that Victoria was going to end up with Albert uh, in the first series. Um, <laughs> and you've also got to have things that surprise people. So I try to combine the, um, the the stuff you can read in Wikipedia with more human drama. And so some of the some of the characters I've invented lives for them. Um, the real Miss Garrett never married and lived until a ripe old age but I'm afraid in my version she she dies of cholera um, and dying of cholera of course was completely historically correct yeah it, it was it was quite shocking see, you know seeing that on the streets of London cholera is not something yeah. fortunately yeah. that we have we have here anymore and it was yeah. and that kind of the difference between rich and poor was something that 
I guess you were trying to emphasise last night. Yes, and also the fact that because cholera was something that um, didn't really affect rich people as much as it affected poor people, um, it was, um, you know, overlooked by the ruling class. I mean, they, you know, there were all these different theories about where it came from. You know, the miasma theory, they thought it was foreigners, but it wasn't something that really affected them. And um, it wasn't until, you know, 1857, in fact, when the great stink, when London smelt so bad that they realized that actually they had to do something about the water in the capital. And, you know, and it smelt so bad that people had to leave the House of Commons because they couldn't stand to stay in the Palace of Westminster because it smelled so badly that they actually, you know, took a concerted effort to to clean up uh, London's water supply, which was the reason that cholera kept happening. And the story of um, Dr. Snow that was in that episode, that was a real, yeah. that was a real story as well. Oh, that is a completely real story. I mean, I've, I've fudged the dates a bit and I've taken some liberties with what happened. But um, yes, he was the person who discovered uh, through very brilliant sort of medical detective work how what the cause of cholera was. And, the, and as we show in the in the episode, he realised that it was the water and not the air or the vegetables or the foreigners um, because there was this one outbreak um, connected to the um, around Broad Street and there was a pump in Broad Street that he was pretty sure uh, was the origin of the outbreak. And then there was a kind of cholera case in Hampstead and he was like, well, how could have that happened? And then he found out that the woman who died in Hampstead had actually gone to this pump in Broad Street and took the water from that pump because she thought, sadly, ironically, that it had health-giving properties. Oh, goodness. Where do, you, where do you go looking to discover the nuggets like this? I mean, there must be a huge amount of research that goes into writing a series, both from the sort of the, the um, timeline history, if you like, of Victoria's reign, plus the the social history and the little those kind of mini you know sort of real life dramas or episode moments that come from uh, well, real life I'm, I'm quite embarrassed to say that i know about dr snow because I, I think i watched something about it on blue peter about 100 years ago i mean it's it's quite a well-known story i mean dr snow is one of those sort of medical heroes who um He's, a, he's he's really an outlier in the Victorian establishment because he was a vegetarian and a teetotaler, which uh, and he came from quite poor, quite a poor background from the north. So he was the ultimate outsider who, in fact, kind of revolutionised medicine. And he was the person who um, uh, first gave pain relief in childbirth to Queen Victoria. Uh, with her eighth child, Leopold, and she said it was, you know, she, she pretty much says in her diaries, it was the best thing that has ever happened to her. So that's, I mean, so I know about stuff like that from, you know, a variety of sources, but I mean, I I read an enormous amount um, about the period, um, both social history and contemporary accounts, and, you know, I, I try and I quite often go to a place called the London Library where they have the, um, which is a sort of library in St. Joseph's Square where they have all the times and other newspapers of the period and I just sit there and kind of flick through them just looking for those kind of little details that kind of bring everything to life. And it's interesting, you know, often with the biographies of Victoria, people talk about the same things and you 
you know, and they, those are sort of usually big things, but they're often things that are quite hard to dramatise. Whereas, you know, I tend to go off on the kind of tangents like Victoria's sister, for example. Yep. Yeah. Nobody knows very much about Victoria's sister, but once I started looking into it, because she's not she's not interesting, you know, she's not relevant to the forward narrative of Victoria's reign. But if you find out about her, you can see there's this fascinating sort of family drama um, unfolding uh, with Victoria's sister, which if you read between the lines, you know, there's an enormous amount of resentment and so forth between them. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty wary me. of her at the moment. She's a new character in series three, a little bit sort of insidious coming in it's funny for our american listeners blue peter is a, a children's tv program that we grew up with in the uk and it's funny how those those little stories can stick can stick with you over such a such a yeah. long time um cool. one more question about that particular episode florence nightingale showed up um mm-hmm. did victoria ever meet florence nightingale or was that a, a sort of a fun artistic liberty to take she did meet florence nightingale but it was later after the crimean war but um, Florence Nightingale did work with cholera victims, and she did have a pet owl called Athena, so Amazing. which which she had found um, on the. She was in Athens, and she, it had fallen onto the steps of the Acropolis, and she picked it up and nursed it back to health. Hmm. Um, how how important to you is the kind of the gender politics? Because that was something that. Um, I kind of noticed a little bit more this week possibly than than usual. I mean, you obviously always have Victoria is the queen and she has a lot of power, but at the same time, Albert's doing his thing and he's kind of in charge when she's having the babies. Um, mm. And then you have um, Nancy who has to resign essentially once she gets married. She can either be... She can either yeah. be single and work or she can she can have a family mm. life and, you know, signs her, her goodbye note as Mrs. Charles Francatelli. Um, mm. which is that kind of old-fashioned version of Mrs. Um, well, that's, if, what they, that's what she would have done Yeah, then. My, my grandmother was always very proudly Mrs. Yes. W.A. Gripper taking, taking her husband's well, initials. Well, that's but I correct, but, yeah. but it was also a reference, of course, to <laughs> A Star is Born, you know, when she says, I'm Mrs. Norman Maine. Wow. Anyway. Very good. So, um, and then, uh, and then that kind of power dynamic between the Duchess of Monmouth and her hateful mm, husband, as he kind of like mm, forces her head down and puts the necklace around her. How you know yeah. that kind of the gender politics of of that time? Because you've also got um, the Chartist seamstress Abigail, yeah. who's quite feisty, feisty and going out campaigning yeah. and and mm-hmm. you know living the life. Well, there was sort of. There was real variation. I mean, basically, you know, Victoria is the is the aberration because she's the head of state, and so none of the rules in the country really apply to her. Because, of course, um, in Victorian England at this point um, in the early 1850s, um, married women were the property of their husband, literally the legal property of their husband. They had no right. They couldn't get divorced on the grounds of their husband's adultery, um, although he could divorce her for adultery. Um, so it was the most inequitable system. And um, although Victoria has power, even she has, you know, there is a constant power struggle with Albert. But I thought it was important also to show how difficult it was for women 
in other parts of life. So, you know, even a duchess like uh, the Duchess of Monmouth is subject to her husband's control. But, you know, even though she was the heiress, she brought all the money into the marriage. Um, if he can prove that she's um, sleeping with somebody else, he can divorce her and she will lose all, she will lose everything, her child, her money, everything. Um, but of course there were women who were independent, but they were usually single. I mean, what's interesting is that marriage was both a blessing and a curse for Victorian women. You know, once you got married, you had no access to contraception. So you were constantly, you know, having to go through childbirth and, you know, the dangers that come with that. Um, but on the other hand, you had the protection of a, of a husband. Uh, if you were single, you had you had to earn your own living, and of course that was incredibly difficult in Victorian times. But you know it, it was often better than being married to an awful man who who beat you up every Saturday night. So it was a very sort of tricky situation, I think, for Victorian women. And I suppose um, Abigail, the the chartist, is she's. I'm trying to show that actually, you know. Um, especially for working class women to be single had had a lot going for it um and she's a, she's an interesting character I mean there were women chartists and a lot of them uh actually did the work went out and supported the men because the men were too busy um you know with political activity to earn a living so there were quite a lot of women supporting chartist men interesting so is it the Victorian era in particular in history that's always fascinated you? What kind of drew you to that one as the one that you wanted to dramatise specifically? Um, well, I, yeah, no, I'm always, I've always been interested in the Victorian era. I think it's probably from the books. You know, I grew up reading, you know, Jane Eyre, Dickens, George Eliot, and I'm just fascinated, Trollope. I'm just fascinated by the period and the clothes and the and the fact that it's you know, it's all around us. You know, Victorian England is all around us. It's, you know, I, I live in a Victorian house. I go to the V&A every, every week. I'm sort of, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's such an interesting period in British life. And so I'm fascinated in how it's both similar and different uh, to today. And I studied it at university and I sort of re- retained a lifelong interest in it, really. And when I came to write a drama, I I couldn't think of a better place to start than with Queen Victoria. And it seems quite appropriate to be having, you know, this really great Victoria dramatisation happening at the same time as we have now the longest reigning monarch, again, a queen in our own lifetime. And again, someone who has seen a huge amount of change, dealt with a a large number of prime ministers of various different... various different shades of politics and you know do you what you mentioned kind of similarities and and differences between the times what kind of what kind of things do you see well i think that queen victoria's certainly had more power as a monarch than our queen does and so i suppose you know queen elizabeth has been more about managing a decline in well managing expectations of royalty and i think what um victoria and albert did was to make royalty popular again i mean i i think this is what i think that actually what victoria and albert did was to make was to turn the royalty it was to turn the royal family into the kind of 
aspirational brand that they are today. I think before that, they'd been all about power. And as their power diminished, you know, what was the point of having a royal family? And what Victoria and Albert sort of proved was that the point of having a royal family was as a kind of standard to which the nation could be set, you know, so they had to kind of behave well in a way that previous monarchs hadn't done. You know, you couldn't continue to have thousands of royal dukes having millions of illegitimate children in the way that George III's children had. So Victoria and Albert, you know, were respectable, they were domestic, they were obviously fantastically grand, but they also brought a sort of certain cosy domesticity to the royal to the royal family, which it hadn't had before. And I'd say that Queen Elizabeth um, has continued that tradition. I mean, if you think of, so here's here's an example. Um, Victoria was the first monarch ever to be photographed because you know photography didn't come in until the 1840s. But she chose to be photographed in a bonnet, you know, so people actually saw that she wasn't a woman who was constantly wearing a crown. Can you imagine if you've never seen a photograph of your queen, to suddenly see a photograph of a woman just wearing a bonnet, you know, that must have been a revelation to people. And then in our time, or in my lifetime, certainly, I mean, I can't really remember it, but, you know, the the the, the queen... Um, had that documentary, made that documentary in the late 60s called Royal Family, where we saw her and Philip having a barbecue, you know, where they were cooking sausages on a grill. It's speaking to the same thing. It's saying, look, you know, we're just like you. Different, obviously, but just like you to some extent. So I think, so they're trying to connect uh, with their subjects in, in a very similar way. And something that's come through quite strongly, particularly in this series, I think, is Victoria feeling that she needs to be seen that or that her people need to see her. Is that something that was new with her? That is, you know, I, I feel like that is something that the Queen kind of espouses. She thinks that it's important that people are going out, doing doing work, being seen, meeting as many people as possible. And it seems mm. it seems like in, in Victoria, that's maybe a new I- idea that isn't necessarily something that had gone before. I think I think it's always been important for monarchs to be seen at various times. Um but I think they had more they had you know, that they, they had more significance and more power. I mean literally people had to see monarchs, you know, in Charles the Second's time they thought he could cure their illnesses, um, for example. I think when it gets to Victoria, I think what Victoria herself was always having babies, so she probably didn't get out as much as Albert did. But Albert was absolutely determined. Um, he was called the Prince of um, Prince of Trowels because he went to every single founding ceremony. I mean, he was his his rate of you know his work rate was incredible. When you think how long travel took, he opened something pretty much every day. I mean, he was the most emphatic, indefatigable royal, and I think he realised with Victoria that it was terribly important that the royal family was seen to be a force for good, a force for progress in the country. Um, are there other royal representations in, in culture that you've enjoyed either just as a viewer or sort of taking inspiration from? Because, you know, the royals from various different eras pop up all, all over the place in TV and, and film mm. and drama. Um, well, I suppose uh, I loved 
you know, when I was a very little girl, I watched Henry VIII and his six wives and the Glenda Jackson, Elizabeth the First program. I mean, you know, I love a royal drama. Um, and I think that's fascinating. I mean, you know, it's always, it's always gripping to see how they're done. I mean, you know, what did I watch? I watched the Tudors. I mean, that was, that had its own um, charms. I would say historically it was fairly played fast and loose with everything. But on the other hand, it's a drama and a very successful one. So you have to kind of um, accept that. Do you, do you feel that responsibility when you're writing, you're writing history and it's, it's kind of, it is blurring the lines a little bit between what's, you know, what's drama and what's history and people can, uh, people uh, can go and find things out. How do you, how do you kind of balance that and how do you feel about it? I, I, I don't consider that I'm writing history. Um, you know, I think people are watching Victoria for entertainment. Um, I try wherever possible to make um, what happens factually accurate. So even if I've messed around with the chronology or whatever, you know, there's usually a basis in truth. So, all right, so Skerritt didn't really die of the cholera, but lots of people did die of the cholera in the way that Skerritt did. So I think that seems to me a way of um, justifying messing around with it. And the Jon Snow story definitely happened, but I've made it dramatically interesting uh, to watch this as the program. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, Florence Nightingale definitely existed, you know, stuff like that. I've, I've tried to kind of draw things together um, to make it more coherent um, for a viewer. And I just, you know, I wouldn't put in, you know, like, you know, Prince Albert going to Cambridge and having his... Um, and wanting to change the curriculum, that's all true, and probably something that most people didn't know about, but it's so interesting in the context of, you know, what's going on and people not being able to find the cause of cholera, and then you've got, you know, a member of the royal family actually saying, well, one of the reasons we can't find the cause for cholera is because our universities are completely outdated in what they teach. So that's fascinating, and I thought that was really worth putting in. And I, th I think it does give you that sort of sense of discovery as well. So Palmerston mm. obviously has come into things this series and is evolving fairly rapidly as a, as a character, is he, you know, for, for yeah. good or for evil. And he was someone who pre previously I'd mainly known Palmerston as the Foreign Office cat who has a Twitter account. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we, we say, OK, he's, he's the Foreign Secretary. He clearly looks like he's going places. Yeah. Does he go on to be prime minister? I asked my husband, who is the deputy political editor of the Mirror, and he's like, "I think he did. Maybe he did. Probably. I just need to check." So we we checked, and we you know we found out a bit more about the history. Yeah. So it does give you that that prompt to go looking for things. I hope he doesn't get upset that I've mentioned that he was not one hundred percent clear that he that wasn't one hundred percent clear that Palmerston was one of the most successful prime ministers well, in the nineteenth century. I think we, I think we'd we'd been having an enjoyable evening, so was, we, were, okay. we were not in the zone <laughs> of thinking about about prime ministers. But um, I mean, the prime ministers that you have written so far, they've been very they've been very mm. different characters. I think Lord Russell at the moment is somewhat over overshadowed by Palmerston, really. But well, that, I think then as now. Yeah. I mean, that was that that's entirely deliberate. Who's, I mean, we, he was. He was, he was a, I mean, any similarities between Lord John Russell and his relationship with um, Palmerston and Theresa May's with Boris was, we're, we're not entirely um, unmeant. 
And what I mean, what do you think Victoria would make of the situation today politically if it was? Uh... Well, I think she'd be horrified. I mean, I think she would be. Well, she'd be horrified by the sort of political mess, but I think she would be horrified at the idea of Brexit because, um, you know, her and Albert's great project was to unite Europe under a kind of royal trade union of which they were at the head. So their plan was to have, you know, to marry their children into the royal families of Europe and to exert a sort of Anglophile influence, a liberalizing Anglophile influence across Europe through their children. And so the idea of, you know, British isolationism was anathema to them. But Palmerston, on the other hand, was very much of a kind of, you know, we can do it on our own, guys. So that's, so you can see that debates that are going on now were, were, were present then. But Victoria, I mean, you mentioned that she had a bit more power at that time. She would have had a bit more chance to intervene if it had been... Well, I think foreign policy, uh, she and Albert felt was very much their thing because, you know, a lot of foreign policy was to do with the royal, you know, the royal heads of Europe who were often their relations or their friends or whatever. So, you know, and that's quite often what the debates between her and the quarrels between her and Palmerston are in the show because... You know, they're, you know, he's, they're horrified, um, that, you know, he's invited the, um, the Hungarian nationalist Kasus to come to, to, to London because, you know, that will offend the Austrian Emperor, Emperor. And, um, you know, Palmerston is horrified that they've asked Louis Philippe, this kind of deposed king, to come and stay. So there's there's an awful lot of kind of conflict when it comes to foreign policy. And which is your which is your has been your favourite of the prime ministers so far, and which one are you looking forward to writing? <laughs> well, obviously, um, Lord M is my favourite prime minister because um, he's a dream to write and um, beautifully played by Rufus Sewell. Um, I think I'm really looking forward uh, to writing Disraeli because I think Disraeli and the Queen are a wonderful combination and uh, I can't wait to do that. So what is what is next for the show? So we've we've got the rest of ep- uh, series three to look forward to, but where mm. where are you in kind of the what happens next? Well, I'm just stakes? thinking about series four and um, again, of course. <laughs> I, I I mean, you know, I think that will be the series in which Albert Bruce has lost. But um, there, there will be surprises, I think, in series four, because um, what happens then is something that's been, uh, uh, you know, subject to much debate. And I've got very strong views about what happens to the Queen after Albert dies. Okay, interesting. Keeping, we'll look forward to seeing how you... Uh how you expand that and I guess it it has that challenge as well because the drama moves on faster than real life so in sort of drama years we're further on and and well actually no in drama years we're about the same I mean right now Tom and Jenna are playing Victoria and Albert pretty much contemporaneously so they're in their early 30s Um, obviously by series 4 it'll be they'll be playing a bit older but not that much older. I mean, Albert doesn't die until he's... I mean, Albert dies. He's only 42. Mm. So we will be able to enjoy Jenna and and her Albert. I hope so. For, I hope so. For a bit longer. Um, 
thank you so much for for joining us today it's been fascinating to talk to you i'm very much looking forward to seeing how the rest of series three pans out and looking forward to to series four as well have you got other projects on as well or is it very much victoria is your main focus at the moment i'm actually having a little break from victoria at the moment i'm writing a few other things which is good i mean i kind of miss victoria when i'm not writing her but i'm quite enjoying you know exploring other eras and other characters um so i hope it means that when i come back to victoria i'll be fresher um and yeah i mean all the stuff i'm doing is it all seems to be about strong women i don't know why (laughs) definitely Um, worse um, things to be writing about than strong women definitely definitely okay well all the very best with those and we look forward to seeing them um come into a book form or screenplay form as as they may be um thank you very much for joining us on the show daisy thank you to our listeners for joining us and we'll be back very soon with another episode but until next time pod save the queen 